Here's our table of kings so far. And so far, it really hasn't been too bad to keep up with, mainly because old King Asa has reigned so long in Judah. But he's now died, and his son Jehoshaphat has become king. We met Jehoshaphat last week when he teamed up with Ahav in Israel to try to take Ramoth Gilead back from the Arameans. And we found out that Jehoshaphat has been a good king, just as his father had been, trying to follow the Lord. But after the Lord blesses him with peace and with honor, Jehoshaphat gets complacent and begins to look away from the Lord. He allows his son to marry one of Ahav's daughters, which clearly is not a good move. Her name's Athalia, and and we're going to run into her later. She's bad news. After King Jehoshaphat gets back from the Ramoth-Gilead campaign with King Ahav, The prophet Jehu confronts him and says, why do you help those who hate the Lord? The wrath of God will come upon you because you did this, even though though there is some good in you. So alarmed, Jehoshaphat redoubles his efforts to lead the people to the Lord and to establish justice in the land. Now, at this point, the books of Kings and Chronicles get really confusing They tell the stories differently. Pieces of the stories are out of chronological order. I mean, this is the place in the Bible where even the most diligent reader might throw up their hands and give up. So I'm going to do my best to thread our path through the story chronologically, pulling from each of these three books. But it's it's often not clear even in the text what the chronology should be. So whenever the text is unclear, I'm going to take poetic license and arrange the events in ways that are at least logical. Just know it's really fuzzy right here. Part of the problem is that we've got too many stories going on at once. We've got Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, Ahav, and we've got good King Jehoshaphat in Judah, but we've also got Elijah, grooming Elisha to take over as lead prophet, even while Elijah himself is still active. And we're about to get to a part where we've got a king whose grandson has the same name. So bear with me, and I'll try to make the story as simple and clear as possible. Let's start with the new king in Israel, Ahaziah. His father Ahav has died in battle, but his mother Jezebel is still very much alive. He's a wicked king. I mean, with parents like that, he really didn't stand much of a chance, did he? So one day he goes up on the roof of his palace and falls through a hole in the roof and is severely injured. Everyone's in an uproar. Worried that his injuries might be fatal, Ahaziah sends messengers down to Philistine territory to consult one of their major gods. Wait, Philistine territory? That is so bizarre. You'd think he'd consult his mother's gods, the Sidonian gods, Baal or Asherah. But no, he sends messengers to the Philistine god, Baal Zabub, which means Lord of the Flies, as in flies on dung. Some scholars think the Philistine name may have actually been Baal Zabul, which means Lord of the Heavenly Place. 
but that the Israelites may have called him Baal Zabub as a derogatory sort of pun. In any case, the name Baal Zabub over time comes to be synonymous with Satan. In English, we pronounce it Beelzebub. We'll run across this version of the name when we get to the New Testament. At any rate, the messengers head right out to take the king's petitions to the Philistine god Baalzebub. And this makes Yahweh very angry. Why is the king turning to foreign idols for healing? That's just nuts if you've got Yahweh. The Lord sends Elijah to intercept the messengers. Elijah tells them that King Ahaziah will indeed die from his injuries. The messengers turn around immediately and hurry back to give the king the message. The king says, what are you doing back so soon? And they say, well, we met a prophet on the way and he said, you will die from your injuries. King Ahaziah says, what was the prophet wearing? And they tell him, um, garments of hair and a belt of leather. King Ahaziah groans, yeah, that was Elijah for sure. In anger, King Ahaziah sends 50 soldiers to go arrest Elijah. I guess he figures he can force Elijah to change his message. Elijah, sitting high on a hill, sees the soldiers approaching. When the captain calls to him, man of God, come down this minute, Elijah says, well, if I am truly a man of God, as you say, let fire fall on you from heaven which of course happens immediately and kills them all. Hearing this, King Ahaziah sends another contingent of 50 soldiers. Same thing happens. Elijah calls down fire from heaven and all the soldiers perish. King Ahaziah doesn't care. He sends another 50 soldiers. This time, the captain of the soldiers starts hollering at Elijah from far off saying, mercy, mercy, please have respect for my life and for the lives of my men. And this time, the Lord says, go with him, Elijah. You have nothing to fear from this captain. And so Elijah returns with him to the bedside of King Ahaziah. There, Elijah tells the king to his face that he will die of his injuries. And that is exactly what happens. After Ahaziah dies, his brother Joram becomes king. He's another one of Ahav and Jezebel's offspring. So let's circle back to see what's going on down in Judah with King Jehoshaphat and all his reforms. Take a moment to get your bearings on this map. The northern kingdom of Israel is this big green section in the middle. That's where Ahaziah has just died and his brother Joram has become king. Judah is the big yellow part in the south. That's where Jehoshaphat is king. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites from across the Jordan have banded together and are advancing on Judah. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat immediately orders the people to fast and pray, and he himself consults the Lord. There is a long and beautiful prayer in 2 Chronicles 20 that he prays in front of all the people, reminding the Lord of his promise to hear their prayers when they pray from the temple. 
He also reminds the Lord that when the Hebrews came up from Egypt, the Lord would not let them fight their brothers in Moab or Ammon, who are related to them through Abraham's nephew Lot, or to fight the Edomites, who are related to them through Jacob's brother Esau. The Hebrews tried to march around the land of Edom and Moab and Ammon, rather than preemptively striking them. There have certainly been wars between these countries since then, but the bottom line is that they are brothers to the Israelites. By now, Moab and Ammon and Edom are once again rising up against God's people. So what should Jehoshaphat do? Where is God in this? As Jehoshaphat prays, the Lord speaks through a man named Jehaziel, who says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Just take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And the king and all the people praise the Lord. The very next morning, King Jehoshaphat stands once again before the people and urges them to have courage and steady faith. And he appoints men to go at the vanguard of the army to sing and to praise the Lord and say, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Can you imagine how scary that would be for those men? But they did it. And as the army marches towards the enemy, and as the men sing and praise the Lord, the Lord causes the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites to begin fighting among themselves. They fight until they have completely slaughtered each other. When the army of Judah arrives at the place overlooking the enemy camp, all they can see is dead bodies. And so King Jehoshaphat, and his army plunder the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites without so much as raising a spear. There is so much plunder, it takes them three days to gather it all. Afterwards, they gather in a nearby valley to praise the Lord. And ever after that, the valley is called the Valley of Barakah, which means Valley of Praise. Now, sometime later, Jehoshaphat makes another alliance with the king of Israel, this time with Ahaziah, just as he had with Ahab. Now, I don't know why he does such a thing. The prophet Jehu had already told him the Lord was displeased when he made the first alliance with Ahab, but he does it anyway. And Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah build a bunch of ships together. I guess Jehoshaphat really wants a navy, even though he's like landlocked. But he might as well have saved the effort because the Lord is not going to let him depend on human strength. The Lord wrecks all the ships before they're ever put into service. So let's go look to see what's happening in the northern kingdom. Remember that Ahaziah died of his injuries from falling through the roof and his brother Joram has now become king. Joram is evil, of course, but not 
quite as bad as his father, Ahav, he does sort of half-heartedly kind of get rid of a few idols. Now, the king in Moab is a guy named Mesha. And long about this time, he gets tired of paying tribute to King Joram. So he raises an army and rebels. King Joram calls on King Jehoshaphat in Judah and also on the king of Edom for help. And yes, this is the same Edom the Israelites fought earlier. These nations combine and split constantly. First their allies, then their enemies. No wonder folks are confused when they read this part of the Bible. Nothing is permanent except that there's a war going on between some of these three, four, five, six nations constantly. There's a war going on somewhere, as Jimmy Buffett might have sung. So for the moment, Israel, Judah, and Edom band together and set out to face King Mesha of Moab. After marching for a week, the armies of Israel, Judah, and Edom run out of water. Um, and I have to crack up at these pictures. These pictures are hilarious. You all would have, have no idea how hard it is to find pictures for these stories. Um, but, you know, it's nice to have a change of pace. And these are pretty cute. So they're dying of thirst here. And Joram, king of Israel, is like, are you kidding me? I knew it. The Lord just brought us out here to have us die of thirst. But King Jehoshaphat, like always, says, uh, I don't think so. Isn't there a prophet of God around here that we can consult? <laughs> We've heard him say that a time or two, haven't we? And one of King Joram's officers pops up and says, well, there is this guy named Elisha. He's like Elijah's assistant. And King Jehoshaphat says, that'll work. And the three kings go to find Elisha. Elisha says to King Joram, why are you coming to me? Go consult your idols. But King Joram says, it seems that the Lord called us, th us three kings together only to give us over into the hands of Moab. So Yahweh is the one we need to consult. Now, I don't know why Joram is so convinced that the Lord is bent on their destruction. I guess because they've run out of water. He's positive this whole drought thing is the Lord's doing. Oh, good grief, Elisha says. If you weren't with King Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't give you the time of day. But since you're with him, I'll check with the Lord. Go get a harp player and start playing music. And as the music begins, Elisha says, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. You will see neither wind nor rain. And yet still, this valley will be filled with water, so much that you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And he will also deliver Moab into your hands. I love this passage. I love this. All these kings needed to do was ask the Lord for water. Providing water in a barren land is an easy thing for the Lord to do, even though it seems impossible to us. You might want to mark 2 Kings 3, verses 16 through 19 in your Bibles. 2 Kings 3, 16 through 19, where it says, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. 
And sure enough, when the kings arise at the break of dawn, the desert is covered with water. And when their enemies, the Moabites, see the sun shining on the water, it looks as red as blood in the dawn's light. So the Moabites think the three kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom have argued during the night and have fought and killed each other. So they rush to the Israelite camp to plunder it. But of course, the three kings and their armies are just fine. And when the Moabites burst into their midst, the coalition of kings rises up and fights the Moabites fiercely. The king of Moab becomes desperate as the battle begins to turn against him. He's so desperate, he sacrifices his own firstborn son to his god, Chemosh, in hopes that that will turn the tide of the battle. But his god is no match for Yahweh, and the Moabites are utterly defeated. The loss of the king's son makes the defeat so bitter that although the Moabites retreat to their own land, they forevermore become furious enemies of both Israel and Judah. There are without a doubt many more such skirmishes, and Israel does not always win them. There's an extremely famous steal, a monument dated 840 BCE, set up by this very king, King Mesha of Moab, the one who sacrificed his son. On this steel, he refers to the oppression of Moab by Omri and his son, Baasha. Remember those kings? They weren't very long ago, just a few years. And he refers on this very stone to the wars fought between Moab and Israel. Here's what he says. And Kamash said to me, go take Mount Nebo against Israel. And I went in the night. And I fought against it from the break of day till noon. And I took from it the vessels of Yahweh and offered them before Kamash. This is the first historical reference to Yahweh that we have outside of the Bible. You can Google the Mesha steel if you'd like more details. I, I think it's in the Louvre, actually, and you can see it. So the story of the three kings is the first time we've seen Elisha surface since Elijah called him as his successor. Elijah's still alive, but he's slowing down. Elisha, on the other hand, is really hitting his stride. There's a whole collection of Elisha stories in 2 Kings 4 and 5. The stories start off talking about the widow of one of the prophets in Elijah and Elisha's school of prophets. Her husband dies and leaves her destitute, and creditors are nipping at her heels. She appeals to Elisha for help. She tells him the creditors are about to take her two sons as slaves. Elisha says, hmm, what do you have in your house? And she says, I only have a small jar of olive oil. And Elisha says, go ask your neighbors for empty jars. Gather as many as you can. Get lots and lots of jars. Then go into your house and start pouring oil from your little jar into the empty jars. And so she does. And she fills up every single one of the jars she borrowed. The oil in her small jar does not stop flowing until every single borrowed jar is full to the brim. And Elisha tells her, go and sell the oil. 
the proceeds will be enough for you to pay your debts and for you and your sons to live on. There's another story about a couple who live in a little town named Shunem. Elisha always stops at their house when he passes through because Shunem is in the Jezreel Valley, as you can see, on the way to Mount Carmel, that a little tip kind of on the western edge uh, where Mount Carmel rises up out of the ocean. And that's kind of his main station. That's mainly where he is. So he's always passing back and forth um, through Shunem. And so eventually this couple build a room for his use, give him his own bedroom. And in gratitude, Elisha asks the Shunammite woman what he can do for her. But she says, oh, nothing. She has all she needs. So Elisha's servant, Gehazi, points out that the couple has no children. So Elisha says, ah, then this time next year, you will hold a baby son in your arms. And of course, that's exactly what happens. But some years later, while working out in the fields, the boy cries, my head, my head. And when they lay him on his bed, he dies. We would probably diagnose a brain aneurysm, right? The Shunammite woman saddles up her donkey and races to Mount Carmel to find Elisha. Elisha sees her in the distance and sends his servant Gehazi to see what's wrong, but she won't tell Gehazi. When she finally reaches Elisha, she falls at his feet. Gehazi tries to push her away, but Elisha says, leave her alone. Can't you see she's in distress? And yet the Lord has not told me what is wrong. And the Shunammite woman cries, did I ever ask you for a son? No, I did not. So why did you raise my hopes so cruelly? And Elisha immediately realizes that her son has died. Quick, Gehazi, Elisha cries, take my staff and run as fast as you can to her house. Lay my staff across the boy's face. And Gehazi does so, but the boy still does not stir. When Elisha and the Shunammite woman finally reach her home, Elisha goes into the boy's room alone and shuts the door. There he prays to the Lord. He stretches out over the boy's body, face to face, body to body. As Elisha stretches himself out, the boy's body begins to grow warm. Elisha gets up and starts pacing back and forth across the room. Then he stretches out over the boy's body a second time. Suddenly, the boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. And so the Shunammite son is restored to her. In another story, Elisha heads over to Gilgal, where they are still experiencing a famine. He's meeting up with a large school of prophets there. This may even be part of his own school of prophets. We don't know. He tells Gehazi um, to fix some stew for dinner. So Gehazi and a couple of the prophets go out in the field to see what they can find to put in the stew. Well, someone accidentally picks up something poisonous, and when the prophets taste it, they realize it's completely inedible. Elisha, without blinking an eye, says, get me some flour, and he tosses a handful of flour into the pot and says, there you go, all better, come and eat. And sure enough, they find the stew is now perfectly safe. So then another time, a man comes to bring Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread baked with his first fruits of grain. Now, a loaf in this culture is like a piece of pita bread. It's not like our big modern loaves that will feed a family. 
you know from our earlier studies that a gift of bread baked with the first fruits of someone's grain are an offering being brought in honor of the Lord. Elisha cannot accept this for himself, so he tells Gehazi to give it to all the people gathered there. But Gehazi says, I can't do that. There are a hundred men here and only 20 barley loaves, like 20 pita pockets, right? So Elisha says, give it to them anyway, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Gehazi obeys, and all 100 men eat, and there are still loaves left over. Now, I know you might think these are complete fables, or they might be the unvarnished truth. Either way, the point is that Elisha is a prophet every bit as powerful as Elijah. He is a fitting successor. Elijah's still around, but Elisha is clearly the right choice to succeed him. So what's going on with the other nations around Israel and Judah? As you've seen in these last few lessons, the relations between Israel, Judah, and Aram are very close. They fight and coalesce, constantly changing alliances. The primary god of the Arameans is Hadad. That's why their dynasty of kings is named Ben-Hadad, meaning son of God. Nevertheless, it's clear that the Arameans know all about Yahweh, the God of Israel. So around about this time, the commander of the Aramean army is a man named Naaman. He is a great man and a valiant soldier, but there's one problem. He has leprosy. You'll remember that any skin disease in this culture is called leprosy. So there's no telling what it actually is, but it's certainly something painful and ugly. Now, Naaman is married and his wife has a slave girl who'd been captured in one of the Aramean raids on Israel. And this girl tells her mistress, if only my master Naaman could go to the prophet in Samaria, I know he would cure him of his leprosy. That comment sets in motion a series of events culminating in the king of Aram giving Naaman permission to seek a cure from the prophet in Israel. Naaman takes 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing as tribute. And the king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel saying he's sending Naaman over there for healing, please. Well, the king of Israel gets the letter from the king of Aram, and he gets terribly upset and tears his clothes because clearly the king of Aram expects him to send his general Naaman back healed of this incurable disease. The king of Israel says, is he just trying to pick a fight with me? I'm not a healer. But when Elisha hears of this, he sends a message to the king of Israel saying, why did you tear your clothes? Send the man to me so that Aram will know there is a prophet of God in Israel. And so Naaman rolls up to Elisha's front door in his grand chariot with all his entourage. Elisha says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. That should do it. <laughs> Naaman is insulted, furious, utterly humiliated. He leaves in a grand huff. 
He expected Elisha to come out and call on his Lord God and wave his hands around and cure him of leprosy. But Elisha didn't do a darn thing, not even a prayer. Think about that the next time you need something from the Lord. Naaman's attendants beg him, please listen. If the prophet had asked you to do a heroic feat, you would have done it no matter how impossible it was. And now all he's asked you to do is wash in the Jordan. At least give it a try. So Naaman goes down to the Jordan River and dips himself seven times. And his skin becomes as smooth and fresh as a newborn baby's. Humbled, Naaman goes back to Elisha. Naaman stands before Elisha and says, Now I know there is no God except Yahweh. Please accept my gift. But Elisha flatly refuses to accept his gifts. And so Naaman says, Then please let me take enough earth back with me to build an altar so I will never have to offer a sacrifice to any other God except Yahweh. That seemed very reasonable. So Elisha agrees to this. And Naaman says, please, do you think the Lord will forgive me when I have to go into the temple of the king's God? I have to support the king on my arm. And when he wants to bow down, I have to bow down as well. Do you think the Lord will know that I'm not worshiping another God, even when I bow down inside the idol temple? And Elisha says, of course, go in peace. And so Naaman loads up as much dirt as two mules can carry, and he sets off towards Aram. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, has of course been listening in on all this, and he cannot believe that Elisha turned down all that gold and silver and clothing. Think what good that could do. So Gehazi sneaks out and goes running after Naaman. When he catches up with him, Gehazi says, uh, my master sent me to say he's just had a couple of visitors arrive and could you please send back a talent of silver and some clothing for them? And Naaman says, well, of course, my dear man, take two talents of silver and two sets of clothing. And Naaman has his servants package all this up and give it to Gehazi. When Gehazi gets back, he puts all the loot in his own room and then goes and stands before Elisha as if everything is normal. Elisha says, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, oh, nowhere. I've just been around here all day long. And Elisha says, but my spirit was with you when Naaman got down from his chariot and gave you money and clothes. This was not the time to accept gifts, Gehazi. Therefore, from now on, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you, and Gehazi's skin becomes white with leprosy. There's so much to talk about in this lesson. Um, I, we could talk for hours and not get through all the amazing stuff in this lesson, but I figured a good place to start would be to pick up a few of the threads that resonate with stories we are familiar with in the New Testament. All righty, so 
This was interesting, I thought. And there were a, probably a whole lot more instances that y'all could pick out and heard echoes of as you were going through. But tell me what you noticed. So like we mentioned Moses for the first one, you know, bringing down plagues and so forth. Oh, that's a good idea. Consume uh, the Egyptians. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Most of these, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I said most of these, we could draw parallels to Jesus, of course. Right. Exactly. Although Jesus very rarely smote anybody with fire. But yes. Uh, but you know, the thing, the thing that struck me was kind of the, the, the flip side of the coin on that. Um, where on Pentecost, where when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, it was like flames of fire. So rather than destroying and consuming the fire that that emboldened and empowered. Oh, I love that. And I love that whole idea that we are supposed to embody that fire. That fire is the spirit. That's that is just a visual of of a, a reality that we are to embody and that Elisha and Moses and all these folks do embody here in the Hebrew Bible. Do y'all, did, did you think of any other calling down fire examples? Renee said Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, that's interesting. That's one. That's the one we thought too. Is it? Yeah. That is so interesting. Guys, what about Elijah calling down fire when he's dancing around on Mount Carmel with, you know, to, with all those 400 prophets of Baal and whatever, you know? So, and we've had throughout the Hebrew Bible, several instances of, of, of fire falling from God, like a lot. I mean, too many to go over, but, um, that one wasn't that that one was intense because it, it, I think it lapped up the water. It, la- it, it destroyed the altar. I mean, it was a, yes, that was like a it, fire on speed. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it reminds me of um, some of the instances we saw back in Moses, you know, when, when fire would come down and just utterly consume that whole burnt offering idea. Right. Um, that, that, all throughout the Hebrew Bible, um, when we see fire from God, when fire is associated with God, it has to do with utter holiness in which nothing can survive because God is the all in all. And that is the imagery we need to ground ourselves in as we move forward to the New Testament and understand the fire of the Holy Spirit from that perspective. That's why we're doing all this work. All righty. So what did you see in the story of uh, the widow? This was the, the widow, widow who went out and borrowed all the jars she could. And then her little tiny, you know, jar of oil, she was able to fill up every jar she borrowed. 
we didn't talk about it, but it just occurred to me that when they had to light the oil for the temple, and it lasted seven days. Oh yeah, Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. Hanukkah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you draw parallels to Jesus when it comes to wine or fish and bread and loaves. Yes. Yeah. And there was well, and, and was it was it Elijah also with the widow um with the who was gonna go home and make one little pita bread for her and her son and then starve? Yes. And and so she took Elijah in and he said, You if you will make me the meal, do this in faith. And she did, the widow of Zarephath. Yes. Um, and so that you know, that reminds me, you know, if we think back to Moses, that reminds me of manna, right? Mm-hmm. There's just this, and, and, and one of the names of Yahweh is the God who provides, you know, um, this, this is a great big thing that the Lord will provide. And I also love that the imagery of oil being what's provided, that oil is what's used in anointing kings and priests, right? So there is something not just with the fire, but with the oil as well, that is important as a symbol of the Lord's provision, because this is olive oil we're talking about. This is the, from the produce of the land. So oil, when whereas fire is associated with holiness, oil is associated with provision. And we need to carry that forward as we go forward. So then we get to the third one, which was the story of the Shunammite son. And I had a typo. I hope y'all saw my note. I flashed you a note that um, that hint should say there's two stories here, one about the Shunammite son and one about Gehazi's reaction to the Shunammite in verse 27. Um, so first there's the story of the son being um, that Elijah, Elisha raises from the dead. Where did you see parallels there? We saw quite a few in the New Testament. Yeah, for sure. Lazarus and the 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 man's daughter and Jairus' daughter. Yeah, and the and the centurion's servant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was also a widow. Jesus just happened on a funeral once um, of a widow whose only son had died, and he raised the the boy, young man. Lots of that. What about in in the um, in the Hebrew Bible? Did you remember any stories like that? Yeah, there was there was um, another. Was it Elijah again? It was um, Elijah again. Yeah, where the, with the 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 boy, where again he laid on his laid it, on top of it. It was the same widow that that took him in. Her son got sick and died, and Elijah raised him from the dead. Um, so it and that 
is very, very interesting imagery um, when you begin to look for these patterns that come up in association with God all through the Hebrew Bible and all through the New Testament. Those are the important things. It's these motifs that are important, not the individual words. <laughs> okay. Don't let people get you down in the trees and lose the forest. It's the motifs. And so in this motif, think back to the, the Egyptian Pharaoh's son and all the sons of the Egyptians who were not raised from the dead. Okay, so this, think about the firstborn son and the significance of the firstborn son to the Lord and how it was the firstborn sons of the Egyptians that were not raised and how the Lord redeemed the firstborn sons of Israel saying, they all belong to me. All the firstborn sons belong to me. They, they are my family, my heritage. They, I have, they are my children, but I give them back to you. And he set up a, you know, a mechanism for that to happen, which was the tribe of Levi. The Levites stood in for the firstborn sons of all of Israel. And the Levites belonged to the Lord. In other words, belonging in the sense that they dedicated their lives to service to the Lord in a special way so that every mother in Israel did not have to give up her firstborn son. That was the Lord having compassion on the mothers. You know, the Lord has compassion. The Lord was teaching them, I am not like these idols who demand that you sacrifice your son like Mesha did to Kamash in this story today. Like Abraham thought he had to do with Isaac. God's whole point was, yeah, I know that's what you think God's want. <laughs> that's not what this God wants. You know, I'm different. So there's something about the firstborn. Jesus being the firstborn. And Paul will talk a lot about, you know, some of the symbolism around that when he, when we get to the New Testament. So what about that Gehazi? He is like one of Shakespeare's characters, right? One of those goofball characters that gets thrown into the story. Um, Gehazi is the servant. And when the Shunammite woman, her, her son dies, she rides that camel all the way across the Jezreel Valley as fast as she, camel, darn donkey, uh, as fast as she can, falls at the feet of Elisha and is just sobbing her heart out. And Gehazi tries to make her get away from the great man. What are you doing? You know, what did that remind you of? I think there's a story of the disciples trying to even keep kid, you know, children yes. away from, from Jesus and, you know, Jesus being like, are you kidding me? No, like, let the little ones come to me. Women, you know, I think of the woman who broke her, I think it was the alabaster, you know, box yeah. and the disciples saying like, get away. And, and Jesus reminding them that she gave what was precious and that he, he received it. Yes. Yes. And this too is, so much imagery about 
how how women in that culture are not allowed to approach and touch men, you know, in that way um, that carried forward. This is imagery around the Lord accepting our gifts as pitiful and poor as they are about the Lord accepting us into his presence. That we can draw near and the Lord himself will defend our right to do that. That's amazing. All I think it, you know, surely at this point you should see that it is no coincidence that the Elisha's cycle of stories picks these particular stories and these particular motifs. These are not random stories. These are stories in here for a purpose. Okay, so what about um, when Elisha restores poisoned water? Uh, that was kind of a throwaway story and I, I did not expect you to remember the chapter and verse or even remember that such a thing ever happened before, but it did happen. And if you looked at, looked at the reference, you will find um, the reference to where the Israelites are one, or Hebrews at that time, are um, wandering around in the, the desert. Blood. Pardon? Oh, sorry, I was saying, I didn't realize we were on speaker. Um, the, wasn't there a story too with where the water turned to blood? Yes, there was. That was in, the, in, in Egypt during the, um, the plagues. The plagues, yes. Yeah. God is God of water, which is necessary for life. Um, and there was a part um, in the, there was a point in the traveling around in the desert where the Hebrews got to some water and the water was poisoned and they just about mutinied and just about killed Moses and Moses was like you do something and do it fast Lord. and um, the Lord said just put your staff over there it, it will work you know and the Lord and the and the water became pure um, in just this kind of weird miraculous way right and um and I think that's interesting that you brought that up, Ellen, that also that same staff is what struck pure water and made it blood, right? So the point is... And that, that same staff is the one, right, that he, he struck the rock, I think, like yes. it, the, too many times. Yes, uh, that was... The, there, there was water needed then as well. Yes, and that's the one that got him in trouble because he's, he made it look like it was him doing it and not God. And that's what got him in trouble, you know. Um, so it's interesting to think about this imagery of water being purified by God. And to think about um, how, how Moses was able to make the the water that had been turned to blood to make it pure again, right? Um, when, the, when the Pharaoh relented, that, that not, and, and the story in today's lessons about those three kings that were dying of thirst and, and the Lord said, You're, it's not even gonna rain and there's gonna be so much water, you know? It's gonna cover this desert. And, and that is not a big deal for the Lord to do. It says that right there in the text. 
The Lord tells them, and you know, this really isn't a big deal, guys. I can do this, you know, <laughs> and I love that. And, and so it's partly about the provision, but think again about how water shows up all the way through the Hebrew Bible and into the New Testament. Where does water show up for us in the New Testament? Baptism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Baptism. And I think the woman at the well. The woman at the well. Jesus talks about living water. Right. That's what I was going to bring up, the living water of everlasting. Yes. And see how that matches up with the whole imagery and motif of fire and how it converts from the Hebrew Bible into the New Testament. Are you starting to see how this all works? All right. These are the threads to hang on to. These are the threads to follow. These are the threads that are foundational. I mean, you can see a story to, uh, today, very recent. Uh, I've seen, uh, they show aerial pictures. Of course, the West is in a, a real bad drought. They, there's a side-by-side -side viewing of, of reservoirs and the surrounding greenery. And you can do a side-by-side -side comparison, sliding the window. And where the water is gone, it's just, it's all dead around it, of course. And... That happened within a year. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We are definitely in the hand of God. <laughs> I don't care if you believe it or not. We really are, you know. Um, and which is not to say that I don't believe in our impact on the world and on science. And like, I'm all about all of that, that, that I, we have a responsibility I think I was going to say, I think too, uh, you know, I, I wrestle it just in, in my own walk with the Lord with like, we've just described how, you know, we, the Bible is clear about like water is not a big deal, you know? And yet, like, I think back to what Ross just mentioned, water is actually a really big deal right now. And there's a lot of people praying for it and it's not coming. And so I, I wrestle just with my perspective on, you know, Seeing the reality that water is not a big deal. God says, ask, you know, and you will receive to some degree. But there's also this element of, in my life, seeing multiple patterns of asking and begging God for a certain thing. And it feeling like either it's a no or it's a not yet or, you know, and so, um, it's, so it's, a, it's a challenge to hear it's not a big deal. But then see so many places in my life where it felt like it was a big deal and didn't show up. You know, Gail, you talk about oil. Uh, we almost were talking about oil versus water here. We have a different kind of oil, but here, we're talking about here today. But you know, there's so much uh, there. There's so much controversy and news around oil pipelines going across America and so forth. And I'm thinking, you better start thinking about water pipelines. Yeah, because Absolutely. water is going to become so much more precious the rate we're going. Yes. And I want to circle back to what Ellen is talking about, because this is an age old tension, you know, that we, that we have to be able to hold. If we become rigid and insist on, oh, well, the Lord will always provide the water when you need it. And, you know, if, if it's not there, then it's because you did something wrong. Hopefully, you know, by now that that's 
There's something wrong with that position, right? And on the other hand, it's equally wrong to stand in the other on the other foot and say, God's not going to show up. We're going to have to do something about this and figure this out, right? And throw money at it and do whatever it takes, no matter who it hurts, you know, to, to, to fix, to make sure that I have enough water for me, you know? Um, when really, as people of God, we have to learn to hold the now and the not yet together loosely and with open hands because we are living in a physical world in which there is evil and in which we have control to a large degree um, and we also live as spiritual beings understanding that all power all provision comes from the Lord you know and so it your question when when your question raised up in my mind um that picture uh it's it's really just a meme of a man sitting on a park bench with Jesus saying and there's all this stuff wrong and you know and da 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 da, da and and what are you going to do about it and Jesus looks at him and said oh i was about to ask you that <laughs> yeah no, because mm -hmm. actually the problem is us in this situation with this water. We could fix this if we were not hoarding money and resources. So um, there, that's all I know to say to that, you know. It, it's, you know, it's too bad. There's a lot of the Old Testament just wa wasted on people going to war with each other. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was, I was struck today by what you said that, that, you know, we see how the Middle East is today. This goes back thousands of years. Seems like they were always at war with each other. They've never not been at war with each other. Yes. Yes. And somehow I think the story is set. God set his story in that place. For a purpose. I think God set his story in that place to show us that he can redeem anything. That he will. He's going to. Um, so the next one, uh, Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 pita pockets. What did that remind you of? Loaves and fishes. Loaves and fishes. Yes. Lots of Jesus there. And that's back to provision. You know, the manna, bread, the motif of bread all the way through the Bible is so huge. Bread. Eat 12 loaves of bread, each representing one of the tribes of Israel to always be before the Lord on the table of presence in the tabernacle bread represents our bodies our physicality it's always used in that as as a metaphor for that i'm not saying that these are all metaphorical stories i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying 
that when you go back through the Bible and you begin to study, this is, this is a tool, this is a backpack tool. Um, and you've now got enough under your belt to be able to do it, to go to hit a cycle of stories like this Elisha cycle and say, wait a minute, I recognize this one and I recognize this one and I recognize this one, <laughs> you know, and go right through and, and have that trigger you to go back through the Bible and pick out the places where bread has been important and what it means. The things that are inside of that tabernacle are super important, like oil in the lamps, like bread on the table of presence, you know, and they, these, this imagery, you now have enough under your belts to begin to see why when Jesus broke bread, and said, whenever you do this, do this in memory of me. He was not just talking about eating. He was talking about when you are broken, when your body is broken, like my body is about to be broken. Remember me, I am there. And um, then we've got Naaman. Naaman's a great character. He's such a puffed up, self-important man. And he, you know, he's like Hercules. Ah, oh, this isn't a big enough task for me. You know, I was a stomp home, you know, and his, and his servants say, well, you came this far. You might as well take a bath. You know, what can it hurt? <laughs> and then he has the humility has the humility something changed for him in the Jordan River not just his body and what does that remind you of the walls of Jericho (laughs) (laughs) I think of the man by the well that couldn't get to the bath and oh yeah and then when he believed he was able to take up his bed. Yes. And walk. Yes. Yes. So many times Jesus healed people of leprosy also, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was pointing out to people, you know, there's a comment, only a fraction was recorded in the Bible. Yes. Of the the miracles. And there is something about leprosy. You know, if we're going to look at these motifs, we have to look at all of them. You can't skip one just because it's hard. Um, But what came to mind for leprosy was Miriam. Do you remember that one? Miriam spoke out against Miriam and Aaron. He didn't get in near as much trouble as she did. I don't know why, but um, it's one of those sibling things, I guess. But um, Miriam spoke out against, she started fomenting rebellion against Moses. And Moses had the three siblings come outside the camp and have a come to Jesus meeting with him. And they um, talked and the Lord said, you know, he, he struck Miriam with leprosy. And Moses just immediately prayed for her and begged the Lord, please do not do this to my sister please heal her. And the Lord healed her. 
But leprosy in this culture and throughout the scripture as a motif has to do with uncleanness and rebellion. Now, we need to understand that that's not what leprosy is or any illness. You know, we would never exclude somebody based on any kind of disability. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about symbolism, right? And we have to be very careful about how we talk about this kind of symbolism with people because people have disabilities. And, you know, and it's hard to keep hearing stories about the blind and the lame being the problem when you're blind or lame, right? You know, Mm -hmm. so be sensitive to that and understand that what I'm talking about is a very narrow application of a culture, ancient cultural understanding. Okay, but leprosy had to do with being unclean and unfit and unable to be in community. And so when you see someone being healed from leprosy, what is happening is they are being restored to community. And that's a really big deal because we are meant to be in community. We're meant to travel this journey together. That gets right back to Ellen's comment about the water, right? We need to do something. Sorry, something I've appreciated is in every, even I find myself similar to uh, the King Naman, I don't know how to say it, Um, but in every story that Jesus healed in the New Testament, he does it so uniquely. And there's not, it's not like I can say, oh, that's the pattern. You know, uh, one, he tells him to do this. Another one, he just touches it. Another one tells him to put stuff in his eye. Like, there's just so many. Yeah, one of those guys he he spits on. Right. And, And for me, I too could relate to his initial response of like, really? Going and dipping myself seven times. But yet there's a, a good reminder that there is not a right or wrong way that God is so um, diverse and that he meets us exactly where we're at. And we don't quite know why he heals certain people a certain way. But to me, it, it kind of relates to the story that you you said earlier about um, Elijah telling him like, yes, God's not going to care if you go bow down in someone's temple because he knows your heart. So it's a good reminder of that. I think my automatic past legalistic teachings and so kind of the alarm goes off like oh no this is how you should do it and this is why this was done so I appreciated that in all of this it just highlights that there isn't a right or wrong way of doing things and that God is so diverse that he he knows our heart and and we don't necessarily understand why he heals certain people and why he doesn't but we can trust that just like Elijah told him, trust, like he knows your heart. Like there was just something powerful today that just gives me some peace, freedom. And I want to speak directly to you two in particular about this story, that about something in this story that you may not be teasing out that I think is really important for you personally. And that is that when Elisha told Naaman to go and, you know, dunk himself seven times, 
And it was such a small thing. And it was so unimportant. And it was nothing that Amman had ever heard of. And it didn't make any sense. And it was just such a small thing that they that he despised it, right? He despised the act as not being sufficient to bring him back into community and to heal him. And I want you to meditate yourselves on the struggle for needing to feel like something has happened to prove that you're acceptable and you're holy and you're good, right? To the Lord. And all I'm saying is that it's an easy thing for the Lord. And there is no big thing that any of us need to to be acceptable to the Lord and brought wholly and fully into community. And it didn't matter if anybody else, any of those other attendants thought that Duncan in in the Jordan Seven River seven times was going to do the trick. What mattered was that's how the Lord wanted to do it. And so to all of you, what I'm saying is be willing to let go of the imagery you have been taught around what ritual or what form is enough, is good enough. The Lord doesn't do it that way. That's not how the Lord is. The Lord does these things for us. It's not the other way around. The Lord gives us holiness with the fire of the Holy Spirit. The Lord provides for our every need with oil of gladness and anointing. We belong to the Lord. The Lord cares for our broken bodies, these loaves of bread that crumble. The Lord is there in our brokenness. The bread crumbles. It does. But the Lord is there in our brokenness and has walked that way before us. And when we are called lepers by those who ought to love us and welcome us into community, the Lord says to us, takes our face in his hands and says, look at me. This is easy for me. These are big lessons. These are so important. And that brings us to the to the last 
which is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is not some big, horrible, mean, nasty God in the Old Testament. <laughs> and there's not some namby-pamby hippie God in the New Testament. <laughs> it's the same God. It's the same spirit that we share, that we are part of. This, And God didn't care that Naaman had to go bow down in an idol temple to do his job. God doesn't care about that stuff, no matter what you've been taught. God cares about this big stuff that we've been talking about and about how we recognize God in each other and between each other and in the world. And that's a lot of preaching. That sounds like a good place to stop for the summer. <laughs> uh, no meeting next week. Um, Julia, we're going to take a break um, for the rest of the summer and start again in September, first Thursday in September. Okay. Um, I've got uh, just way more than I can can do um, at Journey, um, and and I need to be present to them, fully present, and I can't do that and do this class too. Um, my the worst of that should be over by the end of July, but um, the class talked earlier you might you probably weren't online yet and offered to let me have August off too to to try to rest I'll still be doing journey but it won't be as intense as what's happening in July and uh, and I actually welcome that kindness I appreciate that and yeah. and everybody promises to come back in in September but even if you don't I'm still going to do these lessons because I feel like this is my life work. This is what the Lord has called me to do. I'm going to do it till, till I drop dead or I get to the end, one or the other. I might have to just do the YouTube videos. Yeah. I'm going back in the office and with my shoulders the way they are, I can't carry my laptop. Yeah. And I don't need to zoom on my work computer. I'm so sorry, Julian. We will miss you so much, but totally thank you we'll see how it works out okay love to you all you thank all. you, you all have been a great summer everybody yeah, yeah you all have life. been such a gift to us that's for we'll sure we'll see you in the reruns okay <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch up on them. A chance to catch up yes love take care you. everybody thank you gail bye bye, bye. bye.